Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. On this show, we often interview someone who's written a new book or has a perspective on a different relevant topic. And sometimes I also talk with business leaders about their experiences, the challenges they face, and how they've managed to lead a successful enterprise. And that's what we're going to do today. In fact, we've got quite a treat for today. My guest is Peter Lichtenthal. And Peter is, as you will see, a very dynamic global marketing executive who has a strong reputation for igniting growth in very iconic brands. And he's done this all within the prestige cosmetics industry. He's got a fairly innovative leadership style with and nearly 30 years of experience at the Estee Lauder companies. For those of you who don't know, that includes a whole range of brands besides just Estee Lauder, and it includes Bobby Brown, Bumble and Bumble, and Smashbox, to name three that Peter has been involved in. Now, during his career, Peter has guided numerous multi-generational teams through rapid change. He's led cultural and organizational transformations, all continuing with evolution in a highly competitive global market. Since Peter has left his formal corporate career, I should say he's found another calling and he has become a public speaker on topics like leadership and marketing, including at his alma mater, Brian Dice University. He's also an advisor to the consulting firm My Next Season, vice chair of the board for the Point Foundation, and he's a trustee of Second Stage Theater. Peter, it sounds like you're staying as busy as ever. Yes, I am, Wanda. I had an extraordinary career, uh, 30 years at Estee Lauder, 40 years in total, uh, that I look forward to just sharing with you and with your listeners, and I'm enjoying this next stage of my life and career very, very much. Well, I like the fact that you have a moment to pause and look back on that 30 to 40-year career and just to kind of distill it and say, what happened and how did it go? And that that's what I want to talk about, because you had some amazing transitions. But let me do the lead into this one. So you were a successful career, and I'm going to call you a marketing guru in a very marketing-driven company, Estee Lauder. And people that I know that worked with you at Estee Lauder say you were one of the best in marketing that they'd ever seen. And I know you had a fabulous career, and I know you've achieved a lot while you were there. And All of us would be delighted with that success. However, that's where our story today begins rather than ends. Because as a marketing specialist, you took on a job as a general manager. So tell me what happened. How did you get the career? Why did you do it? Sure. That was, yeah, I I was uh, always on a marketing track. My, My graduate degree was in marketing and for 20 years of my career, um, in, I was 20 years into my career when that shift happened and had always been in marketing and 10 years in marketing at the Estee Lauder companies as a director of marketing, then an ED, and then a VP of marketing. And at that moment, my goals in, in my own mind, my goals were to ultimately become a senior vice president of marketing of multiple categories or, or of a business unit or perhaps a, um, a real aspiration was to become a CMO, a, a chief marketing officer. But a moment happened that was one of the two most pivotal moments of, of my career. And that was where 
after being in the Estee Lauder division running marketing for as VP of fragrance marketing at that time, my aspiration and thought what my next step would be would be as a senior VP of marketing or marketing multiple categories. And the, at that point, an amazing executive who was the president of the Estee Lauder International Division uh, tapped me and um, offered to speak with me about his desire for me to become a general manager of the Estee Lauder brand for all of international. This was an extraordinary moment for me because it was the moment when I switched over from a marketing track where I had developed a solid reputation and good track record into basically two levels above to a general manager track, general manager role, I should say, where I was going to be responsible for the entirety of the brand and not just be responsible for marketing, but then have under me finance and HR and brand operations and, of course, marketing, creative, et cetera. So it was a huge jump for me that took me on a track that led me to the next chapter of my career, but that was my, my jump from marketing track onto general management. All right. So one of the things that people ask me all the time about successful senior executives is, did you have your career planned? And the answer is, you sort of have it planned, but it didn't turn out the way you had planned it. That, 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 that's exactly right. Uh, I did have my, my career planned in broad strokes along that marketing track. I had not really considered or thought about the expansion into running, uh, running a, a business or a company as a general manager. So you're right. You know, I planned my career in this broad stroke of a marketing track, expanding as I go along. But the way careers go and the way life goes, this was a shift that taught me a great lesson, not only in making the career shift itself and learning how to function as a leader in a newly expanded role for which I did not have direct experience, but it was also a lesson in needing to be prepared for unexpected changes that occur, which we all know that's in life as well as in career. And that's what I learned from that moment. Yeah. Okay. So somebody taps you, which is an interesting one. We'd like you to come and be Mm -hmm. GM for our international division. Why did you agree to do it? The opportunity, it it was so extraordinary that I couldn't even imagine not doing it. It was a, a challenge. It was a next step that was just enormous. I always loved international travel so, and, and learning different cultures. So to me, it was an extraordinary opportunity. But I took it because I realized that I would be able to grow as an executive. I would be able to expand my, my responsibilities. I'd learn a lot. I thought I'd have a lot of fun and challenge myself and be challenged to stretch in ways I had not thought about before, but still with somewhat of that, I don't want to necessarily call it a safety net, but still within the realm of a brand I was familiar with in a company that I knew and that I loved. So it was really was a way for me to make that a leap, a big career me, while remaining in, my, in the company that, had been, that I had been growing with. So to me, it was a no-brainer to accept it, and I took it on and loved the experience and learned a lot from it. Okay, so in the, you said that it helped you prepare for the unexpected and the change, and right. then it forced you to stretch yeah. and to grow, and you're now responsible for functions that you have never led before, like finance or HR or exactly. operations, exactly. for that matter. What was the hardest part of that transition for you? Yeah, 
There were there were several things that 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 I immediately realized uh, that were in front of me, and so in addition to of course grasping just the complexity and diversity of the brand of the brand all around the world, overseeing the technical areas which was brand new and learning and dealing with a new diverse group of people with points of view. I think in answer to your question, the hardest uh, challenge for me at that moment was in establishing myself as the new general manager and gaining credibility among this very highly diverse, this highly diverse and highly opinionated global international team from a person who had never been an international before. So I knew that, or I felt that establishing myself and gaining respect, gaining credibility with this new expanded international team was the single hardest thing I had to overcome at that moment in order to pave the way for then the nuts and bolts of the job, which was forward strategy, change, going into new, uh, going into new projects or ventures that, that were going to be new and exciting to the brand. So that was the single hardest challenge at that moment that I, I can recall. All right. I have to ask you the $64,000 question. The one everybody wants to know is how did you get credibility? What did you do? Because you're right. People around the world with all sorts of different personalities and views about why my country is different than that central located, you know, headquarters office. And how dare you, who doesn't know my function or my country, come and try to tell me what to do. So how did you do it? How did you get credibility? it is the $64,000 question, and it is something that I, I found myself uh, needing to figure out how to do. I had gotten some guidance from some mentors of mine, and that's always step one is try to get some good advice. My predecessor in that role was extraordinarily generous in her sharing of information with me. She was on to another exciting opportunity, and I trusted in that information. So I, I became a sponge to her and to several other people around me. But some of the very specific things that I did – and I can remember in that first week or two, making sure I was meeting with every leadership team member as well as with the as well as with the team as a whole. Um, I remember needing to establish connection and trust with all of them, but especially with finance and with HR, because oh. I needed to make sure that I got the inside information, closed door information on how things were going in the brand and what's going on with it so that I could be better equipped to deal with external issues. I also did some very tactical things, Wanda. Um, I understanding, I always had a, a hunger for cultural diversification, but I made it my business to personally call each major brand manager around the world. I think I called the top 10 brand managers of our top 10 affiliates personally, just to introduce myself and to make a connection so that I was establishing myself with them as you're important to me and I look forward to working together. And that got a lot of traction, as I I recall. I also called each of our regional sales directors. Soon after that, I I knew that my main challenge was going to be how do I establish myself in understanding, not just literally on paper, but qualitatively and quantitatively and culturally our diverse markets around the world. So short, in short order, in, in months two and three, I traveled to every major affiliate around the world, to every region. I had the credibility of knowing the brand, the Estee Lauder brand, but not of knowing it around the world. So that's why 
made it my business and priority to travel everywhere. But it wasn't just a matter of traveling. One of the things that I did was I made sure, number one, I learned a little bit of the language before I went. Showing respect, being able to say hello, how are you, good morning, good night, goes a long way in showing respect and connection. I learned some of the cultural norms on how business was done, how a hand is shaken, uh, how a meeting is conducted, so that I was not this force from the home office, but rather someone who took the time to understand how things were done locally. I listened, and one of the things I learned was I listened very carefully to all the things that they felt were right, were wrong. I created an open environment, but I was very sure not to just acquiesce to every complaint or request or verify what will be fixed or not fixed or enhanced or changed. But I made sure I was perceived as someone who was listening and learning before acting and, and, and making any potential changes. So I found that that went a long way in establishing, because one of the things I've learned in, in any of my jobs, world travels fast among peers. So things you do with an individual get shared almost like today with how we share on social media, right? But then it was a very different way of communicating. Those tactics helped establish me as a new leader who was intent on learning the international world, market by market, region by region, before I were to make any changes or get into real strategy. So those are some of the first things that I did that I found to be very effective in overcoming that initial challenge. So that's, I mean, I like this notion that you said you reached out to call. So I have somebody that I'm working with recently who's just taken on a fabulous new job. And, you know, usually in that company, lots of people would call and say, congratulations, looking forward to working with you. Mm -hmm. But the direct reports in this particular case have not all called and said, looking forward to working with you. A couple are more enthusiastic than others that I find that that's pretty normal And then, you know, you have two choices. One is I pick up the phone and get a little upset that you haven't called me. Or two is, oh, who cares? I'm reaching out to you either way. And Mm -hmm. you sound like you strike that just reach out, assume the best, you know, establish the personal connection and don't worry about it. Did I get that straight? You, You got that exactly right. And yes, you're correct. Some of them did reach out to me, whether it's by mostly by email. They did reach out to me, but that was separate. My goal wasn't to uh, call you because you didn't call me or whatever. My goal was you're going to hear from me early on, and I'm going to tell you, which was truthful, I'm looking forward to working together, and I look forward to meeting you when I start my travels. So it was enormously valuable because it wasn't expected. And I've learned over the years in in the multiple brands I've led that when a brand leader, when a president or a GM does something to reach out proactively and do something that is unexpected from that title, it goes a long way in gaining respect and trust while the leader, in my opinion, doesn't lose an ounce of gravitas or, 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 or control or power. It actually, to me, enhances and enables that leadership to make change or you know, deal with conflict. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I know a lot of people in making a transition into a place where they don't know nearly very much about the business that they're now leading. There's an anxiety of looking, shall I use the word, dumb or stupid or not Mm -hmm. smart in front of their direct reports. And that word spreads rapidly, too, around the world from phone calls or any other format. 
but you were in listening mode, not so worried about it. As in, tell me, educate me, explain to me. Sure. Um, Listening mode is super important and the ability to ask great questions. I have found that I've gotten feedback that, hey, you ask great questions because my, my, my focus on listening and learning is core and real. And therefore, my questions were not trap questions. They were real questions. Wanda, it's interesting. I've also learned, I'm recalling this, that as a new leader, very often your questions can get interpreted as being opinions. And wonder why, why is he asking this? Why is he asking that? So I learned to ask my questions and set the stage for them in true learning mode rather than asking a question in observation mode. And mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a real difference. So the ability to, to ask questions in an area that was not my expertise, I never had a problem with that because to me it was a sign of openness and strength to be able to say, please take me through this. Because bottom line is your ability as a leader to, whether it's asking the right questions, giving context, uh, providing perspective or wanting to learn perspective, doesn't show you're dumb. It, it all depends on how those questions and conversations are asked. And the one thing I would add to that, which for me was always very important, is that in addition to the questions that might be asked at a, at a large meeting or a group meeting, when I entrusted, when I mentioned earlier that I was particularly focused on making sure my relationship and trust was ironclad with my head of finance at that point, it was because... My background was in marketing, not finance, and I needed to know that behind a closed door, one-on-one, I could say, we're going into a meeting later today. Can you please make sure that, can you please make sure I have this right? And I would say what I, under, what I understood to be true or help me understand this. Not only did that help build that relationship, it prepared me for the more visible meetings that might have been occurring with a group, but it also enabled me to become more of an expert, if not an expert, in an area like finance. And that was true also in brand ops and other areas that were not my core area. So having that ability to learn and ask questions, having that ability to have trust with individuals on your team to be asking those questions and learning behind a closed door, these are the things that add to your ability to not appear dumb not appear and get that response. Like, I can't believe he didn't know that. I've never experienced that. I don't believe that's ever been said, but it's all in the context of how you're gaining your information, in in my opinion. Yeah. The, I think there's, we don't pay nearly enough attention to the quality of the question that's asked and to the tone with which the question is asked. Um, And that's what you're saying. Yeah. I think you've just nailed it. Much is said in tone, much is said in word choice, and quality of question asking is very powerful. Words matter. And the way in which you learn and the way in which questions are asked is super, super important. The one other thing I wanted to mention to you that I learned and, and, and a challenge that I overcame during those early moments as a new, new GM is during my travels, I learned from many, many of our brand managers that there was a lot of disappointment in how prior international uh, group meetings were held. It was one annual meeting that was a very important meeting. And apparently a small number of people in the audience were highly, have always been highly opinionated and would bring the meeting down with questions and concerns and this and that. My first time hosting that meeting was coming in about three, four months. 
and I wanted my first meeting to be a success. It's a huge meeting of all the international affiliates. So I put into place a brand new strategy. What I decided to do was create a brand summit meeting in advance of that full-on meeting with the leaders of the top eight affiliates, which included the most vocal people, pre-vetted the plans, pre-vetted what was going to be shown to get input and concerns, and made them feel more important in the process and listened to, and then paved the way for a meeting that was highly successful. So it was one of those things that I learned about how to overcome those challenges that first-time GMs in a new area can make. And it all comes down to how you bring people into the process and learn in order to make sure that externally, hey, this is his first meeting and this meeting was great. And that was one of my, that was one of my first showings. All, a lot of us as leaders have those first major moments of yeah. presenting or leading a conference. And that was super important to me. Right. So if I just summarize all this together with a couple of bullet points, there is that business of reaching out to people and making them feel that you care by a personal phone call, by a personal reach out, by I'm looking forward to working with you and so on. There is the willingness to go and learn, to learn the language, to learn the meeting protocol, to learn something about the country, and to learn about the brand and how it was working, how the business was working in that particular area. All right. There is um, the behind closed doors, the confidence with people who can say to you, you got this right. You don't have this right. We're on track here. Make sure the details are straight. And then there is the ability to ask questions in a way that doesn't intimidate people, but that helps you really, truly get to the essence of what's happening. And then we create a process by which people feel that they have a voice even if they don't necessarily have control of direction, but that their voice is heard and will be respected. Uh, that's, that's, you, you've summarized it perfectly. That's exactly what I, I learned during that process and some of those things that are so important. And I would just add very briefly that those phone calls, that outreach, was accomplished not just showing that I quote-unquote cared, but it signaled to them that they have a role and that I respect them in that current role. Now, obviously, things may change going forward, but it was an important connection that got made. And then the one other thing I would mention is that you, you captured my, my tendency and my practice of bringing people into my trust, and mm-hmm. it's reliant on trust because the minute mm-hmm. something someone breached at trust, that was a line that was super important to me not be crossed. Mm-hmm. And that's something that no leader can really, uh, should really tolerate because in order to get the right information insights, there has to be ironclad trust. Right. Okay. That's excellent. All right. Uh, we could keep going on that one, but you know, you've got like a dozen transitions here that I want to talk about. Let's move <laughs> sure. to ahead. And I want to talk briefly about your taking on a different general manager role, which was for Mac Cosmetics. And this is right. a different process. Right. Tell me a little bit about what happened there. Yeah, that, that was a very different kind of challenge. And that was a moment where I was able to, do, I was diversifying from, I'd already had experience as a general manager, but here I was diversifying my experience from one kind of brand, meaning the Estee Lauder brand, established, classic, um, very, very large to a acquired brand, which was already integrated into the company, but was known as being irreverent, non-corporate, 
artistry-based, cool downtown separate location from where the headquarters and where the Estee Lauder brand was located. And here, the challenge was taking my GM skills and my marketing skills and adapting it to an entirely different culture with a leadership team who was highly capable and very seasoned. And here comes this new person, this new guy, who was, had experience only in the Lauder brand. So that was a very different kind of challenge that was focused on the cultural adaptation I, I needed to make in addition, of course, to the business dynamics involved. Right. So, you know, what was the secret to your success in that? And I, I you know, first off, you've got the resentment because we're glad we're acquired and we kind of resent that we're acquired. And then you got a little bit of a fear of this older, more established brand, um, more traditional brand in some ways is going to try to kill us this irreverent upstart. I guess they're not so much of an upstart, but there was a kind of countercultural no, okay. feel about Mac at that time. And they were in totally different locations. So what did it take to win them over? Yeah. The, uh, the interesting thing about that moment in Mac's history was that it was it had already been fully integrated into the Lauder companies. It wasn't in a transition phase as my next assignment was. So it was very well integrated, but handled very autonomously and separately downtown. So the key challenge there was, as, just as you said, my experience base was in a very different kind of brand. And here it was, how will I demonstrate to that team, which was so creatively based and artistry based, how do I, how do I show my, my, um, my ability to function in that, in, that, in that brand, particularly since the brand was on fire and doing extremely well. So th- th- this, was, uh, not a, th- this, was, this was a moment of success for the brand that we need to continue to go. So one of the things that, that I did and the lesson that I learned is, is adapting my own authentic style. And I use the word authentic because I, I firmly believe that each of us has many different styles. You can't create a new one. You can just pull out different parts of yourself. But the lesson that I learned was how to adapt my own authentic style into that very different brand and learn and, and begin to speak a bit differently, write differently, obviously dress differently, because this challenge was that team need to see, needed to see, yes, I get it. Peter gets it. I get what this brand is about. I enlisted, so when I would write you know, broad-based announcements or emails, um, I would enlist the support of our creative director, who is a writer and who's genius. And just, I wrote it. I'm a good writer, you know, but does this sound like Mac? Am I sounding a bit too corporate? You know, and so some of those things were minor things that I did. Other things that I did was I decided that since this is an artistry-based brand that reveres makeup artistry, that I was going to enroll myself in basic school and learn on that first class, learn in the basic class how to do Mac makeup. And so I spent three days at a Mac class with new Mac artists learning technique. Now, they all knew who I was. There's no secrets in there. But I wanted to learn firsthand the language. I wanted to learn the philosophy. Now, another person might have said, I'll get an orientation for an hour on this. But I saw two values in this. Number one was learning a great deal about the core essence of what Mac was about. But secondly, I knew that if I attended that school, that 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 news would spread greatly and demonstrate to far more people than in that one class 
that I was serious about learning artistry, and I'm no, I am no makeup artist, never was, never will be, but that effort paid off dramatically in overcoming that challenge, that hurdle of the cultural shift that I was going through. So I learned, you know, that was one key element. I learned how to conduct meetings in a more fluid, different way from how they may have been done uptown. I learned to enable and ex- help, help accelerate the, the activities and programs that the current team was doing because, my, the, as I said, the business was on fire. And then my role was how do we then look forward and accelerate and, and keep that going? So those are some of the things that I did, but this was a major cultural hurdle for me, not as much a learning to be a GM. I had that credibility, but this was my first time moving to a very different kind of brand where I had to demonstrate I'm adaptable, I can change, I'm going to do that in day-to-day small details, and I'm going to do that in big, broad strokes as well. Peter, I think what I love about this story is the thoughtfulness of each component of what you're doing every single day and the messages those small actions make to the larger organization, from writing an email to a large number of people to attending, and I can't imagine any other GM of any other company saying, fine, I will go and take a three-day class on the equivalent of the shop floor. I'm exaggerating, but that's what the core of this was about. And I'm going to be treated like every other person, even if it's something I know nothing about. Um, I'm going to go learn. So I get a sense of what this place is about. That There's just incredible thoughtfulness on how all of those things would be received. Yeah, and, and, you know, I I, I came from a company where there's a tremendous attention to detail. Quality matters, details matter. And that's just the, that's the culture I brought, corporate culture I grew up in. But it's also reflective of who I am as a person because I put a great store, I put great emphasis on the power, the power of individual details and the collective power of those details are huge. Now, these elements that I've spoken about with you are separate from all of the cost management, strategy development, tougher decisions, diversification, all that kind of stuff that happens to run the business and grow the business. But the reason, you know, I've talked about some of these techniques that I've used and in my next assignment, even more so, because that was even, in many ways even more of a challenge. But when you pay attention to those things, those details that prove that you get the culture, you know it, you know that brand's DNA, it smooths out and enables the ability to effect greater change. And anybody who's taken over a business unit knows that tough decisions need to be made down the road. And that could be things from personnel changes, management changes, strategic direction that people are not always buying into, but enabling those to happen, in my view, more effectively and productively occur when the backdrop of what you do, the details to which you pay attention, how you demonstrate your own ability to, to, to be part of that team, it enables the tough decisions to be made. And I think in overall, contribute to a better working culture that becomes ultimately more collaborative, more participative, because you know, you're no longer during the, one of these moments of transition, you're no longer the person from something. You're the person who now is something and you're in it. 
And that doesn't come from just being yourself and then just changing everything. It comes from being yourself and paying attention to those ways of operating. It just gives you credibility and it gives you more license to do the quote unquote tougher things that are coming quickly down the road. Yeah. Peter, fascinating. Uh, We have one more major transition I want to talk about, but we're going to take a break for a moment. I think the thing that just strikes me here is we often think about our credibility in terms of what we know, what we bring, our ability to see the strategy, to make the tough decisions. That's what we think about, particularly as a GM. And what you're talking about is another layer of credibility, not to discount the first, but another one. And then you said it brilliantly that I'm not the person from someplace else. I'm the person who is this place that I am now. And that enables some of the harder decisions. All right, so my guest today is Peter Lichtenthal. Peter, as you've been hearing, is a global marketing executive who's run a number of companies, built some iconic brands, grown um, brands in the cosmetic industry. And when we come back, we're going to talk about his taking over of Bumble and Bumble. Yet another fascinating story. We'll be right back. From the boardroom to you. Voice America Business Network. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. This is Wanda Wallace, host of Out of the Comfort Zone. Do you find yourself in a role where your team knows more than you know? Are you struggling to see how you now add value? For years, I've coached leaders who have moved beyond the comfort zone of their expertise and have developed a methodology to help them make the leap and go on to do more. All of those tips are now packed into my new book, You Can't Know It All. Visit our website at leadership-forum.com or tune in to Out of the Comfort Zone for more insight. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Peter Lixenthal, and Peter has been a general manager at a host of companies all in the cosmetics industry. He's doing a variety of other things at the moment, but we have been reflecting on his career and what it's like to take over an organization, particularly when the people that you are now leading know fundamentally a lot more about the technical components than you do or the cultural components that you know. I want to turn now to yet another transition in Peter, in your career. And this is, so you've been leading Mac as GM. That's a company that was succeeding. It's a different culture, yes, but it was on a growth trajectory. It had a very strong management team. And the transition was to show them that you could fit in and then be part of it, be feel like one of them and use that as a platform to enable some changes and continued growth that need to happen. 
But the next piece in your career is taking over Bumble and Bumble. And this is a very different story. Tell us what happened and tell me about the challenge there. Sure. So I spent a few couple of years at Mac and then was asked to take over Bumble and Bumble. I was promoted to actually global brand president of Bumble and Bumble and found itself in a very different moment from what uh, what Mac was in. So I'll just briefly set the stage of what I walked into, if that's okay with you. Yes, so please. Bumble and Bumble is, is an extraordinary brand. It began as a world-class New York City-based salon in the late 70s and 80s and then turned into a... Uh, a prestige product company selling a full product line to over 2,000, well over 2,000 points of distribution, principally in North America and some internationally. It was started by a hairdresser who ran the brand until Estee Lauder took over full ownership of the brand. And at that point, before I joined it, the founder left, and I was the first person, the first brand president after the founder who, uh, again, who was a hairdresser, and it's important that I mention that in, in involving the story, um, asked me to take over. And I, what, I, what I found in Bumble and Bumble and what I, was, what I went down to, to their offices in the meatpacking district, was a brand that was a deeply felt brand in terms of culture, commitment to their mission, their creative mission about the craft culture and commerce of hairdressing, commitment to authenticity, commitment to not being a corporate brand, um, and dreaded fear of that, and very creative force at New York and London Fashion Week, and it's an extraordinary brand. However, it was a moment that they felt completely untethered. The founder, and there's nothing like the power of a founder, had just recently left, this guy from Estee Lauder was coming down who had no experience in the hair and hair care industry or salon industry. And despite my few years at Mac, I was perceived as the Lauder guy. So here is this guy coming in with no hair industry experience, taking the role, not the place, but the role that the founder had had in terms of running the brand. And I knew only two people in a team of about 150 so I didn't even have people I knew the way I had in previous transitions. So it was a moment of fear. It was a moment of concern. It was a moment of, uh, of terror about the brand becoming corporate and, and, and losing its uniqueness. And I sensed that when I walked into the office, when my then boss, who was a group president, and took me down there, introduced me, and basically said, you know, do it. You know, so I had to... Restabilize the business, grow the business, restore profitability, I'm sorry, enhance profitability, and do all those things that you need to do to run a business. And at the same time, um, hopefully safeguard the extraordinary DNA, culture, creativity, and passion that was in that brand. So that was a moment where when I walked in, I felt the fear and concern. I felt the skepticism of who am I, what, why am I here, and what are the real motives here on what you're going to do to us with no, basically no friendly faces in the crowd. <laughs> so I wanted to set the stage for you of what, it, what, the, what the leadership challenge was, was for me, because unlike my prior ones, this was an entirely new industry. I had not been in hair care, and here was a moment that was even more unsettling than any other leadership transition that I had ever experienced up to that point. 
Yeah, I can imagine there is nothing that prepares you for a sea of 100 faces, 150 faces that are looking at you saying, with the, with the expression on their face, just what the heck do you have to offer us and how badly are you going to destroy us now? Or some equivalent right. of that. Um, so, okay, Peter, how you clearly won them over because you were there for a while. How did you do it? Yeah. What did you do? Over 10 years, yeah. Yeah. Well, similar to the, some of the things we've already discussed, Wanda, there were two sides of what I had to do. One was the business side. I immediately linked with my head of finance, my head of HR, and started digging into that P&L, into the balance sheets, and understood that a lot of work needed to happen. And I had to prioritize what needs to happen, when, what's most urgent, and what can wait. I was very conscious of calling my shots on change because much of change can be equated with cultural annihilation if it's removing something, changing something that people feel dear. So I caught my shots on the things that needed to change that weren't as outwardly visible, perhaps, but started effecting some change. But at the same time, I did much of the same thing that I mentioned in my earlier roles. I made sure I met with each and every single department in, in that building my first week. I met with my leadership team that first week. I made sure to reach out to our key customers, our key salon customers who bought our products in that first week or month because they were concerned about what the change was going to be as well. But I realized that what I needed to do here while looking at the business itself in this post-founder full Estee Lauder integration uh, stage, which meant things integrating systems implementing cost of goods management, implementing timeline management, more controls and more disciplines into the running of the business, that while I was doing that, my main need was I needed to engage, I needed to connect, and I needed to get to the point of credibility that hopefully I would inspire the group, the whole collective team, while some pretty dramatic changes were happening. So, and that included some personnel changes. So I... I, similarly to what I told you, I, what I did with Mac, I actually went to one of those uh, Bumble and Bumble basic, uh, uh, basic creative classes as well. I wanted to learn, and I gained a lot from that from a credibility standpoint. I began developing very quickly an understanding of the culture and of the DNA, and that meant how I was, similar to similar experiences before, how I was running meetings, what I was enabling to continue, people's fears about not being able to wear jeans anymore. They saw that nothing was changing because that, that was one of those fears. I began putting together um, uh, breakfast meetings, casual breakfast meetings that anyone on the team could, uh, could sign up for. And we just talked informally, chairs in a circle, not in a conference room, but in a circle, just talking and handling it and learning in that way and hearing what grievances were, hearing what fears were. And so they heard that, once again, I was listening. I attended the BBU, our, our Bumble Bumble University classes, and I reinstated, or instated, I should say, or put into effect, uh, what in corporate ease you'd call a town hall meeting. And, but I decided that, again, what you picked up on Details Matter met with my creative director and said, I want to do a town hall meeting, let's brand it. And we called it the BB Speak Team Meeting. Minor, minor nuance, 
but once again, a signal of this is not a corp- big corporate town hall meeting, but it functioned in, in a similar way. When I did my first, and I did it basically every quarter, I started establishing a new tradition. I opened the meeting with personal information. So I had each one of my leadership team in preparation for each of those uh, BB Speak team meetings. Give, tell me what's gone on in the last quarter or six months. Who's gotten married? Who's gotten engaged? Who just got his or her MBA? Who just, who just ran a marathon? Who just whatever? And I'd open up each session with uh, what's been going on with people. This is a very people-focused brand and culture. And it established connection beyond my expectations. And then after that became a tradition. And it's really important to cre- if you're a leader in a, in a, in a, in a uh, deeply felt culture, then establish, continue old traditions that are great and establish new um, brand traditions. So that became one that people loved. And, and I would then go right into the financials and what's going on and what has to change, but it changed the tenor of what those meetings were about. We created a lot of cultural things like a family Thanksgiving where people brought in potluck style the week before Thanksgiving. We did barbecues. We were blessed with a terrace. We did a summer barbecue. We did a holiday bad sweater contest day. Um, I established a social committee chaired by uh, a, a manager or below levels who would come up with ideas for ways to engage the team. This kind of entrepreneurial environment, intergenerational but entrepreneurial indie brand mentality, work life is very important. The blurring between, between uh, home life, work life is much more blurry and Work life and quality of what that work style is like was super important to this team. So those are the things that I put into place to keep culture going, work, work lifestyle going, while at the same time needing to make certain cuts, needing to make certain strategic decisions, but always based it off of and getting back to the Bumble and Bumble mission and why we are here and how this all fits into it. So I know that was a lot, maybe more than you bargained for in your question, but it was a lot of things I needed to do to make to make effect change. Yeah, I, I mean, anybody who's worked an entrepreneurial firm knows the power of a founder, and especially yeah. a founder that's been successful and built, built a good brand and so on. And the loss of that personality, um, that reason, it's almost like you, you feel like you lost a bit of your soul sometimes in losing a founder. And I can see the first person coming in after that founder, it's sort of, okay, what, so what are you going to do to us now? I can see how that would be a problem. What strikes me, though, about your stories, Peter, is the, again, I'm going to go back. You said it's the detail, but it's the focus on the culture. What is it that drives this culture here And then how am I reinforcing it, drawing on it, becoming a part of it in every detail that I do, from how I run meetings to how the chairs are organized to what we call the town hall to how we open the town hall to who chairs a committee about what we do over the summer. Um, It is in the details, but with that eye to the culture. Exactly. And all of these, and there are many more examples that, that, that we don't have time to go over, but what I learned over time is that, as, as I believe I mentioned a bit earlier, 
much change had to occur within the brand, significant change, change in business model, expansion of distribution, um, expense management, uh, the way in which we operate. All of those had had to change dramatically. But by focusing on these details at the same time, the team overall, I believe, remained engaged. And I did additional things like I I truly fostered a culture of collaboration to the best of my ability, and folks at all different levels saw that, put into place strategies for communicating and over-communicating because today's generations want to feel like they're part of something and need to understand their context. Um, I, I, I put a, a big focus on, on, as I mentioned, engaging, connecting, and inspiring myself to the team, the team to each other, but also, very importantly, try to stretch the boundaries of innovation. Because as a creative brand, they wanted to see new things happen. And by encouraging, by encouraging that growth and that communication and involvement, they felt the brand was moving in the right direction. I also made it my business at meetings. If I had junior people at a meeting, I'd make sure to say, hey, John, hey, Jane, what do you think? And allow them to answer. And keep that news like that is white, it go, spreads quickly. But in today's generation of modern workplace, modern leadership, providing that voice is, is critical even if that voice doesn't lead to the final decision. So those are some of the, the, the other things that I did and learned from that whole, that whole experience at Bumble and Bumble. It's interesting. You know, we talk so much about multi-generational workforces, and then we talk about inclusion. And what you just said is actually, I think, heart and soul of both of those. I want to feel like I matter enough for you to listen to what I have to say. I mean, it, it really comes down to that simple of a thing and creating a space where I can tell you what I think, even if it's wrong, but you listened, that's okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, sort of ask it just the simple act as a leader of asking people, what do you think is enormously yep. powerful? All right. I have to ask you, we just have a couple minutes before we're going to close. Sure. But I can't help but ask you about conflict because in the midst of all of this, you have some really tough decisions. It's big changes, including turning the distribution model upside down. Mm-hmm. What's your advice on how you deal with conflict and contention and debate? Yeah, that's conflict. Debate is part of the process of effecting change, unless you just want to be dictatorial and authoritative, and I don't think that works in today's modern workplace, conflict is going to be there. One of the things, conflict will be there when there's passion for a brand and there's true engagement. So the flip side of feeling great and engaged is dealing with disagreement and how do you manage that. So the way I I try to handle that, particularly during moments of major uh, brand shift, and the shift was one key moment was diversifying our channel of distribution to go outside the salon channel and into full-on retail, which was in the past was a no-no, was never thought to promise in some cases verbally we would never do that. And yet the marketplace called for it. It was a major opportunity. So in a nutshell, what I did in that process is one by one from the leadership team, one level down and into larger groups, 
explain context of what needs to occur because of a changing world. Once you establish some facts about changing world and what's been looked at and what we need to do, it immediately brings down the tension of that potential conflict. The second thing is, once again, getting feedback from people on how to make that change allows them to feel like we can do this in the right way, that's right for our brand. But number three, and perhaps most important, uh, which has two parts to it, what's most important here is the ability to explain the change, whatever you're making, and how it fits into the mission of the brand. It just means thinking of the mission perhaps a bit differently. So here's how we're going to make this change and why this supports our mission and doesn't just fight against it. And the other thing is getting some key core people who are dyed-in-the-wool brand people or your, some of your customers, get them on your side and use them to express their support for the change you're making. Use them as opinion leaders, as influencers, if you will, using today's language, because that helps the buy-in and helps bring down conflict. And that was one of the major uh, moments in my career, not just at Bumble, but in my career overall, that diversification of ch- channel at a moment when it was necessary from a marketplace point of view and having it work within that culture and getting the people behind me to then deliver the best strategic and creative product, that was, that was a, a major moment for me that I learned from dramatically, and I'm trying to capture that here. Peter, that's incredible. And sadly, we are out of time. I think we could go on for yet another hour. Um, Let me just sort of wrap this up by saying my guest today is Peter Lichtenthal. As you've heard, Peter is a global executive in the cosmetic industry, having led brands like Estee Lauder, Mac, Bobby Brown, Smashbox, and Bumble and Bumble. And Peter is now also a public speaker on leadership and marketing in a variety of places. Peter, I think the thing that strikes me the most, the thread through all of this, is the attention to the feel of the culture and the details that express and perpetuate and continue to foster that culture and using that as a way of establishing your credibility as a new entry and the entry for a GM as well as then ultimately using it as a platform for affecting change. I just don't think we talk about that nearly enough. That was brilliant. So, Peter, thank you for being a guest. Thank you very much, Wanda. Thank you. All right, and join us next week for more wisdom on getting out of your comfort zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.